and welcome back to the Not So Fit Couple podcast with your hosts, Lucy Davis and Benjamin Holden. On today's podcast, we are joined by Mohammed Mo Gaudet. He's an Egyptian entrepreneur and writer, the former chief business officer for Google X and author of the book Soul for Happy. Despite Mo's long and incredible career spearheading some of the most incredible companies in the world, he struggled to find true happiness in his life. Mo is the creator of the happiness formula, which we explore in today's conversation over a few laughs, smiles, and even tears. This is truly one of the most inspirational conversations and people we've ever had the pleasure of sitting down with. We hope you take away as many tools as we did from today's conversation on your quest for happiness, as we're excited to share this one with you. Enjoy. There we go. Aww, thanks for signing our books. Oh my God, I'm so uh, honored, honestly. Uh, that, 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 that smiley was quite uh, controversial for a lot of people. Really? Yeah, people were like, uh, yeah, very simple or like, you know, cliche. But the whole thing is the equations on it. Yeah. They're actually accurate with one mistake on them. And then, uh, and then the idea of my daughter was, you know, basically, so it was my daughter's design. It was like his, a smile can be designed accurately with an equation. And then I had a, a math geek once come to me and say, I loved your book, but do you know that the uh, equation on the curve of the smile is actually frowning? Oh. And if you actually look at the math of it, it is. I, it should. It should be a minus, not a. Not ah. <laughs> but who was we? We no, can't we tell that. No, I don't was think. The only one that's made it. Yeah, that, that that's it not. Up. No, I think it's absolutely fantastic. And, and, and I looked at it and I was like, Oh my God! It, you're right. And we were in a public place, and I was devastated that the math oh, was no. wrong. <laughs> <laughs> on this well, yeah. Mo Gallet, welcome to the podcast. And also, a couple were very you. privileged to have you on. On that. T- topic of the smiley face i was really annoyed today because we ordered a small <gasps> gift which was two oh we, we can send it we can send it it's we'll two, send it to it's you two s- small smiley faces and the idea is that you give one I of them that idea to, to someone else to put a smile on someone else's face even if it's someone that you don't potentially know just someone that you cross in the, in the street it could be anyone that you you give it to so we'll have to Remember to send those. Okay, but then in return, I'll give you my one billion happy bracelet, which works the exact same way. So basically, people, uh, when people ask for a one billion happy bracelet, we give them one for themselves and two extra to give to others. I love that. Provided that they talk to them about happiness and what they learned about happiness. Oh, that's a great idea. I love that. I think that would be, uh, I'd be very proud to see you guys happy. So, that'd be brilliant. We'll definitely have to do that. We'll have to try and track you down. (laughs) I know, you'll have to say where you are. You'll track me down anytime. (laughs) So, so, uh, you know, for our uh, audience, we just recorded my own, uh, recorded them, uh, Ben and Lucy, on my own podcast. And I love those people. I really do. (laughs) I mean, you're so sweet, the two of you. And together, together, you're sweeter, which normally is not the case for couples so <laughs> oh, <laughs> thanks. I'm, privileged I'm, yeah. I'm really excited about this conversation today Thank because you. i think the, the the topic of happiness is such a big thing in so many people's lives and i i genuinely believe this episode will help so many people i hope so and it's funny because since we've posted kind of images or pictures of your book on social media so many people refer to you as the the happiness guy or the the king of happy like, oh is that sh- true yeah, yeah. Honestly, happiness guru we've had everything it, it must be a, a pretty 
special feeling to be associated with those descriptions? I, I, I don't believe them at all. I, uh, I'm not at all a guru. I'm not. I mean, the, the only description that I think was reasonably okay for me was the happiness engineer, which mm. is, uh, I think, the only thing that I s- did slightly differently. I mean, I shouldn't say that. I mean, Soul for Happy has a few very, very, very novel concepts that were not discussed before. But I think Soul for Happy was mainly about the fact that we have changed as humanity. Happiness is not a new science from, you know, the ancient times humanities had one uh, task really, which is to have to find safety and happiness, really. And I think um, and I think, however, that the way happiness has been taught over generations has been a little too mystical for today's, Mm. you know, Instagram, TikTok generation, if you think about it, because we want things that are quick, fast, fact, logic. Uh, if you tell me to say um, I'm like, what are you talking about, right? Mm. And I think my approach to having a very, very logical approach to happiness is what registered. I started from an equation, uh, which is very unlikely for a topic that's as fluffy as happiness. And then from there started to go into how it really works. And I think that really made the difference. Well, we, we've been glued to your book for the past couple of weeks. Um, for, for our listeners, can you kind of take us back to, I suppose, when and how your happiness journey begun? Yeah, I think my... Uh, th- thank you for being glued to the book. I, that's <laughs> such an honor. It, it, you take a lot away from it. And I also think I'm quite kinesthetic the way that I learn, the way the book is structured with the bold text. Yes, I L- like the bold text. Love it. Yeah, it's very yeah. easy to take those nuggets of information away. Thank you. I'm, so so I, I, I have not been always happy. I'm by far the luckiest person you will ever meet. I, I just say that openly. I was born and raised in Egypt, uh, public school, public university in Egypt. So not really educated, if you think about mm-hmm. it. And, and I ended up uh, in a very, very privileged position in my corporate career. I was, um, you know, I worked at IBM, Microsoft and Google at the time where those companies were changing the world. And, you know, at Google, I started uh, as vice president of emerging markets, spent 12 years, so 12, spent seven years literally opening half of Google's operations globally, uh, 105 languages, a, a huge privilege to forget the fact that, you know, working at Google at the time was like winning the, winning the lottery. But, but, but it was also the fact that I was accountable for what was known as the four, the next 4 billion. So that when I joined Google, I think they, we had like a, a 800 million users or something, which sounds like a massive number, but it isn't in the, in the world of the internet. And my task was to bring knowledge, democracy of information, if you want, and the internet to 4 billion people. So what a privilege. Mm. And, and then I, I ended up, um, um, as chief business officer of Google X, which I think is the second best job on the planet, right? Uh, basically, innovation with the smartest humans on the planet to solve big problems. So I was very, very, very lucky. And I was very lucky at a very young age. So by age 29, uh, when online trading was still starting to happen, I was extremely geeky and mathematical in my way of thinking. And I was a, 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 a nerd. I, all my life, I wrote code. I was very technical. And so I wrote bits of code that literally allowed me to print money on demand. By age 29, I promise you, when my, my wonderful wife needed a, a new car, 
I'd say, okay, Wednesday. You know, it was that predictable for my math uh, that the machine will print money by Wednesday. And, uh, and uh, I started to get more and more successful, more and more of the perks of life, if you want. And interestingly, the more I got, the more miserable I became. So from age 26, when I was the luckiest, you know, happiest person you can ever meet, to 29, where I suddenly now had my four-bedroom villa, my swimming pool, two luxury cars, my, my, my ex now, but my wife then was stunning. She's the most beautiful woman on the planet, with all due respect. Uh, you know, she was the most spiritual, wonderful, kind, nurturing woman on the planet. She gave me two wonderful children, and I was miserable, literally clinically depressed. Right. And, and I struggled because, um, you know, how come I had nothing three years ago and I was happy as a child and now I have everything and I'm miserable. And I think that took me a lot of uh, a lot of reflection, uh, as I said at the beginning, not, uh, you know, I couldn't understand the language of mysticism, mysticism of, of, of the happiness gurus. So I had to research it as a scientist, if you mm. want. Uh, facts and data, reverse engineering charts, believe it or not, to get out of my uh, my unhappy zone. And I ended up finding a way. But I ended up finding a way that was understood for my highly analytical mind. I could only make it human by co going to my son, who was a very unusual child. He was, I think, born a tiny little Zen monk. He was always happy. And he had that way, you know, when wise people uh, don't speak a lot, Ali literally wouldn't speak almost at all. Like you would tell him something and he would ask you questions and questions and really rarely ever shares anything. And then eventually he would say eight words and you go like, oh my God, like that, that's actually real pure wisdom, right? And so I would go to him with my analytical approach to happiness and he would listen and smile and ask me questions just to entertain me really, really. And then, and then simply goes like, you could have asked me, like, you know, you spent <laughs> a year of research on that. You could have asked me. And then he would explain it as the heart would feel it. Mm. And together we built that model uh, that really worked, really worked. You know, it didn't prevent you from being unhappy, but it could bounce you back to happiness very, very quickly. And then Ali sadly uh, you know, as many who follow me know, he was 21 and a half. And uh, he lived in Boston at the time and basically texted us, uh, called us a couple of weeks uh, before the semester ends and said, hey, I really feel compelled. And that was his exact choice of words. I feel compelled to come and see you. Is it okay if I book a ticket? And we said, of course, we love you, come. Uh, and four days later, we lost him. Four days later, after he came to visit us, he had an acute uh, belly pain, and we went, we took him to a hospital. He was diagnosed with an appendix inflammation, which is really very simple as mm -hmm. a surgical operation. Uh, but the surgeon did five mistakes in a row. All of them were preventable. All of them were correctable. And um, yeah, they did five in a row, corrected them wrong, the three of them wrong. And so four hours later, we realized that our son was internally bleeding and dying. And yeah, four hours later, we lost Ali. And uh, I think that was basically my 
turning point. I was chief business officer of Google X at the time, paid very handsomely, um, very, very prominent in the tech world. And uh, yeah, I, I left it all and I decided that my one task in life would be to keep Ali's essence uh, on this planet. And, you know, I, I started with a mission when Solve for Happy was written. I started with a mission that was uh, 10 million happy. My math mind basically meant, told me that if I could take what Ali taught me and spread it to 10 million people uh, through six degrees of separation, exactly 72 years, don't ask me why I calculated that way, uh, Ali would be everywhere and part of everyone. A, a tiny bit of his essence would be mm -hmm. everywhere. And uh, and so I wrote Solve for Happy simply for that. To, to First of all, to document what my teacher taught me now that he left, but also to just spread his message, keep his essence. And, and somehow uh, the universe conspired to, to make this a success. So within, uh, we had a mission of 10 million happy. We here is, a, a, we are a tiny group. We're a group of four people really. I've always been uh, the entire 1 billion happy mission. And, and we, ha we had a target of 10 million happy. And then within six weeks, we had reached 87 million people. And we don't measure, the mission is not about wow. uh, video views. You, you, know, you and I know mm -hmm. that, you know, we get a lot of people liking our videos online, but mm -hmm. they, they don't necessarily change their life as a result. We, we were measuring people who watched a piece of content and as a result took action either to invest in their own happiness or to spread happiness to others. Mm -hmm. And yeah, within, within six weeks, to eight weeks to be specific, we had blown through the 10 million target. And so the team, you know, basically thrashed me and, you know, whipped me and said, you, you're sandbagging like you're a businessman. We need a bigger target. And so we signed up for a billion which I know we're not going to do in a lifetime, so no more up, up, you know, upward revision of the target. But now we're basically just waking up every morning trying to make a billion people a little happier. Wow. That's, that's beautifully put. Like, I think to have that mission and to, to want to wake up and make other people happy, especially in a time like now, is a, is a beautiful oh, yes. thing to do. One of the things that you touched on there was obviously... Um, the passing of your, of your son, Ali, how do you remember him? Oh. Well, Ali, on one side, was the biggest gift I've ever been given. Uh, not, I mean, everyone who gets a child gets a gift. I mean, a child is such a beautiful gift. But this weird little creature was so unusual was so unusual and he he I think he came to the world to make me love him teach me something and leave making him also the most painful experience of my life losing Ali until today as you can see Ali left us in 2014 so t eight years ago mm -hmm. right and it still hurts and and you know I I will openly say I believe it will hurt for the rest of my life it's not it's not unhappiness there is a difference there is a pain literally a physical pain that I feel when I remember I'm not going to hug him again in his physical form. And, and that pain somehow triggered something that I think is the most, it's probably the reason I came to this life. Now, the way he made me love him, though, is, was very different because Ali was not just my son. 
Ali was my son, of course, but he was my best friend by a very long uh, mile. I am a very serious video gamer, uh, you know, and I, I remember vividly I was his idol until he was probably seven or something. I'm, I'm like Olympic champion level video gamer, so I'm very serious. And then he beat me. I, I remember vividly. He was a bit seven or eight. I was traveling on a business trip. And at the time, we used to play Tekken, if you remember yes, Tekken. Yes, Tekken, yes. Yeah, and, and being uh, such a good father, I used to always tell him, Ali, come over, Habibi, let's play a bit of Tekken. Let me whip your ass. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and so, and so I arrive from a, uh, from a business trip uh, at 2.30 a.m. in the morning. And Ali's still awake. He's eight, okay? And as I walk in, he says, Papa, I missed you. It was two weeks. Okay. Uh, would you like to come play some Tekken? I want to whip your ass. <laughs> okay. And I was like, are you serious? You really want to be beaten at 2.30 a.m.? Why are you awake? And he said, just let's play one game. And that was the very last time I ever won. Ever. Ever against him. Ever in a video game. Like, he beat me hands down. He wiped me clean every single time. He was a legend, truly a legend. And, and so he was my idol in video gaming. But there was something about that child. I remember vividly when I was 16, I spoke to Well, my best friend. And I said, when I grow old, I want to become like Ali. Okay. He had that very unusual wisdom to him. He had that very unusual calm and peace. I, you know, as I, as I was saying about you guys on my podcast, that you have a beautiful energy to you. There is a pleasantness being around you. Ali, if you looked at his teenage pictures, he was always in the center of the picture with, you know, six girls from this side and seven girls from the other side hugging him. Because he had that beautiful and he had that unbelievable hug to him that even as his father, you know, I, I, he became taller than I am. I think when he became 18, I used to always uh, call him shorty. Very good father, as you can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, 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 we loved each other. and He understood I wasn't making fun of him, but I used yeah. to always call him shorty. And then he became uh, taller than I am, I think, when he was 18. And the day he became taller than I am, again, I was on a business trip. I came back, I hug him and I go like, Ali, you're taller than I am. And he says, yes, fat hobbit. (laughs) 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 And since then I was fat hobbit for for the rest of my life. But but, but that relationship um, truly was, I think, topped with what I believe is very unusual, which I seriously considered Ali to be my master, my teacher. Mm. Okay, sensei, if you want. Okay, and and it was a very unusual relationship because that wasn't only when he became super wise in his late teens. It was always since he was seven, eight. That habit of speaking very little but speaking so wisely just completely shifted my approach to everything. Not just him, but to also sh- to to everyone around me. I started to realize that you can be eight and teach me something. Mm. And I think that really flipped everything for me. You mentioned that that it's not the feeling of unhappiness. It's a different sort of pain. What What is the cause of unhappiness? What is the sense of being unhappy? Well, I, I think that to, to explain this, we need to talk about how ha- happiness and unhappiness works. And I, I think there are... And I, I, I'm just going to take a few minutes, but I'll get to your question. Oh, yeah, no, take so, your time. So, so there are 
wrong assumptions around happiness. Uh, you know, most of the modern world sells to us the idea that happiness is something to attain, to achieve, to uh, to to aspire for, mm. right? Or to uh, so, so basically, we're told by advertising that you need to. Uh, to, to acquire this or to go to that place or to, you know, have a beautiful girlfriend or boyfriend or, you know, whatever. You need things from outside you to make you happy. And that's an absolute wrong assumption. As a matter of fact, my first eye-opening realization around happiness was that this wasn't true at all. The reality is you were happy when you were uh, four-year-old. You were happy when you were two years old. You were happy when you were one-year-old. You were happy when you were zero. Okay, and that's something that most of us don't realize that every child that's ever, that you've ever uh, observed, if they were fed safe, given their basic needs for survival, their our default setting uh, is happy. Okay, children when when they are loved and safe and warm, they you know play with their toes and giggle. They don't ask for likes on Instagram. They don't expect you to give them an Xbox. They don't want a fancy car. They don't. They don't. They don't need anything from outside them. It's actually designed within us. The parasympathetic nervous system basically returns you back to that calm and peaceful contentment as long as there is no reason for unhappiness. Okay. Now, when you realize that, you realize that assumption number two, which is also very wrong, is that there are things you can do to attain happiness. There's nothing you can do to attain happiness. There are things you can do to stop being unhappy. Okay. But your default state is happiness. So look again at that, at that same child. If the nappy gets wet, hmm, the child has a reason, has an irritation, a reason to cry and be unhappy. You change the nappy the child goes back to peacefulness and contentment and happiness, right? And so you, you have to understand that the assumption was wrong, that we were taught wrong, okay? Now, you, you take that assumption and you start to ask yourself, so what should I do to find happiness? And you start to say, okay, you know, it's not about finding things to make me happy. It's finding the things that make me unhappy and removing them from my life. Now, for every normal human being, if I told you that, you would say, okay, I'll take a list and write a few bullet points down and start to remove them from my life. I feel unhappy because, you know, Ben snores at night. I don't know if he does, but, uh, you know. It's true. Uh, does he? It's true, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I'm going <laughs> I'm I'm to find a way to make him stop, right? And, and, and if, you, if you do that, you'll be more and more happy by removing reasons for unhappiness not for engineers. Mm -hmm. So my mind at the time when I discovered the first two simple assumptions simply told me, oh, interesting. There must be an algorithmic way of finding out every moment you'll ever feel unhappy and every moment you'll ever feel happy through an equation. Mad, I know, I swear to you. I look back at it now and I go like, what were you thinking? <laughs> but it turned out to be true. And I think that moment of craziness, madness in my life, I basically wrote down 92 points. I remember vividly. I probably have the list somewhere. 92 points of moments in my life where I felt happy. Mm. I feel happy when my daughter smiles. I feel happy when I have a good cup of coffee. I'm a very big coffee fan like you, yeah. right? And, and, and I wrote them down and I started to look for commonalities. I was basically like in engineering what I was doing. I was looking for a trend line. If you, if you drop a few data points on a chart, you sort of feel there is a curve that is a fitting curve between them. And I was looking for that. And it turned out to be true, which is assumption number three, is that happiness 
is exactly like fitness, okay? It's so predictable that if you do the right things, you'll be fit. And if you do the right things, you'll be happier. It's, it's as simple as that. Mm -hmm. And the equation is actually, you can't, you can't describe something with an equation unless it's hyper-predictable that, that it will happen the same way every time. And so I basically realized that the only commonality across all of the moments in your life where you felt happy was not what the moment was about. So, so you know, here in the UK, for example, when it rains, I panic. I'm a Middle Eastern with a bald head. Like every drop, you know, you feel every yeah. drop, right? You guys don't even notice it, especially Manchester people. Like you, what rain is normal, right? We hate the rain. Do you? Yeah. I don't like, yeah, we hard know, rain. Yeah, no, not no, the one. Nobody, no, I'm no. good that you said that, right? But, but take that same rain that you hate, okay? For many people, I always give the example, rain will make you unhappy if it rains on your wedding day. I pray that it won't. I think you guys are so uh, radiant that it won't. Okay? I really hope. Yeah, but for, for many people, if it rains on their ex-boyfriend's wedding day, it's a great event. <laughs> we love, great we love rain, like bring perfect, bring it yeah, on. Yeah, right? let it pour. So, so it's not rain itself. There is, mm. there is no inherent value of happiness in rain. The event doesn't matter. There must be something else in play here. And that's when it becomes clear. Your happiness is a result of a comparison that happens in your head between how life is behaving and how you want life to behave. Okay? Every time you've ever felt unhappy in your life was a moment where you, uh, life gave you something that you didn't want. And you can summarize that in a very simple math equation. Happiness is equal to or greater than the difference between the events of your life and your expectations and wishes and hopes of how life should behave. So we in our minds constantly calculate constantly what life is giving us minus what we want life to be. If we fall short, we become unhappy, right? If we, if life meets our expectations, our brain has nothing to complain about. So there is silence inside, no, no, no noise, no white noise. And so your default state as a child is happy. Okay. And now let's go back to your question. So what does that make unhappiness? Makes unhappiness a survival mechanism. Okay. Unhappiness, uh, um, you know, worry, anxiety, fear, shame, regret, any negative emotion is basically your brain solving the happiness equation very quickly, saying this event does not meet my expectations of safety, of ego, of fitting in, of whatever, mm -hmm. okay, of longevity of my relationship, whatever. So something's wrong with this event. It's so, so basically it alerts you. It says this is not good. This is like a tiger attacking me, okay? So we need to do something about it. That's the pain. Do you, do you understand that? So yeah. every time I will remember that Ali is not in my life anymore, I cannot hug him anymore. My entire being cannot accept this as, a, as an okay thing. So I feel the pain. I feel the pain of missing him. I feel the pain of why couldn't I have him a little more to, to, to teach me, right? And the pain comes from outside me. Hmm? Unhappiness, on the other hand, is not that moment. I'm one of my favorite, favorite uh, humans on the planet is Jill Balti Taylor. Dr. Jill Balti Taylor is a very famous neuroscientist, and I and I hosted her on my uh, on my podcasts uh, around four five months ago. And Jill teaches me during that conversation that 
there is a chemical side to unhappiness, right? So you feel that pain, your entire physical form reacts, right? You get cortisol, you are stressed, you want to react to it, you want to do something about it. But she says, from the moment you're triggered to the moment all of you, of those hormones are flushed out of your body is 90 seconds. Can you believe that? 90 seconds. And I said, Jill, what does that mean? Some people stay unhappy for 90 years. Yeah. She, she said they repeat it in 90 second intervals. Over and over. Over and over through thought. So what happens, and I, I write about that in my next book, Unstressable, is that the first trigger of pain is telling your physiology something's not right, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. okay? And you need immediate reactions, which is why we get hormones in 90 seconds. If it's a tiger, we don't have time to think about it, right? Yeah. We have to, to react very quickly. But then within 90 seconds, as the hormones flush out of your body, hmm, your prefrontal cortex, your logical brain starts to engage to assess the situation. Is there really a tiger, right? And for most people in our modern world, because what makes us unhappy is not a tiger, okay? What makes us unhappy is mostly psychological issues. You can regenerate that pain in your head in the form of a thought, okay? You basically, your, your partner says something hurtful on Friday, right? You wake up Saturday morning and the event is over. Your partner said it. Maybe if you hug, it will be fine, but that's not what happens. What happens is Saturday morning, you start to go like, remember that clip from 4 p.m. yesterday? Let me play that again and torture myself. It's like the Netflix of unhappiness, mm -hmm. okay? It's unhappiness wow, on demand, yeah. right? And you play it in your head in the form of a thought, and that triggers the same response. And it gets worse. Absolutely. It gets worse in two ways. One way is you start to add your own drama to it. We're such good authors, right? What happened is your partner said something hurtful on Friday. On Saturday, you say, play it again. On Sunday, you say it's because he or she doesn't love me anymore. Okay. Where did that come from? The event is he or she said something hurtful. That's not the same conclusion, right? And then the following day you say it's because I'm getting old. The following day you, be, you know, you you say it's because uh, what did you call it? Thigh gap, um, oh, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, on my gap, podcast, yeah. right? So 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 basically you start to make those stories and and you tell yourself that life is horrible and that you're gonna spend the rest of your life alone. That's one side. The other side is much more dangerous. The other side is known as neuroplasticity. You know from fitness that if I go to the gym and work out, I'm ripping my muscles a little bit. So I'm basically telling them, you know, replenish, mm -hmm. become stronger. Yeah. With your brain, it's quite interesting. With your brain, the parts of your brain that you're using wire together. So literally almost like upgrading the software of your brain, but you're literally upgrading the hardware. You're basically, if, if I... Uh, ask you to do this, to, to tap your finger on the table, okay? And that takes certain neurons to work together. And there are, there are scientific experiments. If you keep doing this for 21 days, those neurons will literally be hardwired, literally reconfiguring your brain so that you become super efficient at tapping your finger. Now, if you start to tell yourself that everything's wrong all the time about your partner, about relationship, your relationship whatsoever, the parts of your brain that you're using to create that become really good. 
They really become so efficient. And the parts of you that are capable of finding the truth, uh, you know, uh, debugging the, the, what, what your brain is telling you, finding an excuse for your partner, like, you know, he was upset or she was upset coming back from work or whatever, those parts become very weak. Mm. Okay, it's it's almost like if you want to visualize it, you know, if you go to the gym and squat every day, you're going to look like a pair, right? If you go to the gym and lift every day, you're going to look like a triangle. Okay, uh, the same happens in your head. If you're constantly looking for what's wrong, hmm, you become really good at looking at, at finding what's wrong. Okay, your brain dedicates more circuitry to finding what's wrong. You become the world champion at finding what's wrong. So every time you solve the happiness equation, is the event missing my expectation? The answer is yes, because you're so good at finding what's wrong, right? Not because life is wrong. Can you undo that? Absolutely. So you've built these the both ways, and yeah. you can go back the other you, you, way. You, yeah, you know, you know this from fitness as well. Mm. If you stop squatting all the time and start lifting a little bit, you'll have more balance, right? Or if you, if you squat and, and lift in a reasonable balance, you'll have a more... A balanced body if you want right with with our with our brains one of the things i always tell people is it literally is about the gym right if you watch i say that with respect huh? if you watch the bbc news every morning you're training your brain to believe that the world is going to end right yeah but but the truth and i say that with love and respect the truth is they will report on the woman that hit a man on his head, you know, her, her boyfriend mm -hmm. or her husband on the head, they will not report about the four million others that made love last night, mm. okay? And the reality and the truth is that your brain gets trained, right? So, 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 so it becomes really good at finding that. Stop watching it, okay? I always say, I mean, I haven't watched a horror movie in 14 years. Haven't watched a violent movie for 11 years other than when it really is recommended to me by someone because it has a very important mm -hmm. message you know um, inception for example has a, a lot of shooting in it but it has a very important message right uh, and i have not had a nightmare for 14 years really not had a nightmare for 14 years absolutely do you think where it, it's it's almost like a circus though where we can't help but almost peer into to look at the negativity? It, it's, it is, uh, it's neuroplasticity. You've trained your brain to not be able to stop doing this, okay? You, like we train our brains to swipe on Instagram, right? You can reverse it. How can you reverse it? One of two ways, either reduce doing the bad, ha doing the bad habits or increase doing the good habits. If you, if you do more of the good habits, okay, they replace the bad habits. Again, very much like fitness, mm -hmm. okay? The only difference is when we work out in the gym, it's apparent. It's, you can see it in your, uh, in your um, uh, physique, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. When it's happening inside your head, your brain size doesn't change. It's just the wiring is reconfigured. And so how do you measure it? You measure it from your behavior, Okay? If you're always worried and anxious, that's probably because being worried and anxious makes you look for what is you're, 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 you're anxious and worried about. When you look for something, you find it. So it makes you more worried and anxious. So you look more, and then it makes you more anxious and you look more. And you're constantly training your brain to just kill you. Okay? Now, the truth is, and I'll, I'll be very open, for everyone who's listening to us who have been listening to the news for the last you know, 10 years or five years or whatever, there has always been an event predicted that will end our lives. 
whether that's COVID or the economic crisis or the war on Ukraine or whatever, there's always someone in the news telling you, this is it, something's going to go very wrong. And you're still here. Isn't that evidence enough that those things happen and that we're going to be fine? Now, why do we go out searching for them? It's because we are trained to look for what's wrong. Now, when you go look for what's wrong, you find it. When you, when you find it, you feel unhappy. So, so pain and suffering, going back. Huh? I, I remember vividly. Huh? So, so I, I lose Ali, my son. And Ali is my whole life. Hmm? So my brain attacks me viciously. I think the very first thought was around the ego of a parent. A parent is supposed to, lose, to, to protect his child. So my brain viciously, in the middle of all of this, constantly keeps telling me, you should have driven him to another hospital. You should have driven him to another hospital. You what good is that thought brain? Like seriously, how can I go back in time now and drive him to another hospital? What I wish I could drive him to another hospital. It's over. I can't do that. Can you give me a useful thought? Right? A useful thought is very interesting. A useful thought is a thought that is focusing on, yeah, something might be not perfect, okay? My partner said something harsh on Friday. Yeah, that's actually interesting. That's important for me to observe. The pain is to trigger me taking action, okay? Maybe I should do something about it. Instead of incessantly thinking about it, give me a useful thought brain. What do I do about this? Uh, maybe text him or her and say, hey, baby, you know, I was hurt when you said that on Friday. Can we talk about it over dinner? Right? And, and just taking that action changes everything. It, first, it changes the life itself because now you're a step closer to either finding out if, you know, if they meant it or if they didn't, if you want to continue with them or drop them. Right? And all of these are good outcomes, better than the outcome of being stuck in that incessant thought. But also, interestingly, because... The part of your brain that's incessant is different than the part of your brain that is responsible for uh, problem solving, for execution, for, you know, most of that happens in the prefrontal cortex, okay? And so when you move the incessant thought to the forefront, by definition, you don't feel unhappy anymore. You're not actually obsessing about it anymore. You're actually in execution mood now, and that makes things easier. So, so one, one side is useful thoughts. Allow me to, to give you the other side, which I think for a lot of people is quite odd, which is a joyful thought. So sometimes thoughts are not useful, okay? You know, you lose a child, there's nothing you can do about it. Every, every morning after Ali died for a very long time, probably until today, I wake up and my brain says Ali died, okay? Yeah, it's a, fa it's a valid thought. It's a valid thought. And you know what I do? I respond by saying, yes, brain, Ali also lived. Okay, and it's yeah. the same fabric of the thought. Okay, but somehow my brain chooses to remind me that I lost Ali after 12, uh, eight years ago and forgets to remind me that I got Ali, by the way, unplanned, biggest gift of my life, hmm? and had him for 21 and a half years. Okay, had all of the joy, all of the jokes, all of the uh, of, of the hugs, all of the games, all of the stories, all of the music we played together. I was given the biggest gift in hum humanity's history. And my brain chooses to dismiss it completely by saying Ali died. No brain, Ali lived. Okay, And I would take this pain a hundred times to have the 21 and a half years that I lived with him. Right? So a joyful thought. By the way, Ali lived doesn't change anything. It doesn't bring him back. Mm -hmm. Do you understand that? Yeah. yeah. But it's a joyful thought.
it's from a different fabric than your survival machine, the, the, the fabric that your survival machine, your brain, is constantly trying to remind you. Your brain is constantly saying something's wrong. It doesn't think about the 250 things that are right. Like if anyone listening to us right now, that means they have a podcast device that they can listen to. They have time that they can uh, that they can uh, you know use to to listen to to a podcast. They they feel safe. They have a, a roof on top of their head, probably. Otherwise, they wouldn't have the appetite for a podcast, right? They probably are not starving to death. You know that by definition makes you one of the luckiest two percent alive. I think two things from from what you just said there is is one. I think it's evident from the way that you you speak about Ali the the beautiful relationship that you two had, the love that you had yeah. for your son as well. And I, I hope one day to be able to have that much love and uh, relationship with my future children or half the amount that you had because it's I, I so, love, so I love evident. that you looked at her when yeah. you said that. <laughs> uh, the, the second thing is, and this will come full circle. Um, I realized also probably from reading your book and listening to you talk how lucky I was because I also had my appendix out when I was <laughs> 16 and just thought it was kind of an everyday procedure and didn't realize the complications that can obviously... It's such a beautiful thing to say. ...come with it. Yeah. Um, so it made me really lucky. And another circumstance, and I'll, I'll tell you why this relates, is when I was 18, I had meningitis mm. i was on i was in a coma for, for two weeks mum and dad had to come and say bye because they thought i was i was gone and uh, the thing that saved my life was the doctor said because you're so fit and healthy yeah that's why you're alive today the only yeah. reason why you're alive um and that's part of the thing that inspires me now and part of my mission is i think although i don't believe in religion it's one of the things that why i'm alive today is to inspire other people to live a, a fitter and healthier life yeah. life and you spoke in your book um about something called like the uh, imaginary eraser test yeah and and that to be honest even though it was a, a really horrible part of my life i wouldn't erase it because it's it's exactly. it, it, it led to things that i've met lucy um through fitness lucky it's you inspired me. Yeah, lucky, very lucky <laughs> me um and I, I think you know where i'm potentially going with this if you were to apply the eraser test to your life and I wouldn't erase a thing. I, I wouldn't erase a thing. I mean, uh, first of all, thank you so much for saying that you had an appendix uh, operation when you were 18 or when you were 16, because I, I call this looking down. You know, the, 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 the reality of, the, of a lot of the reasons why we feel unhappy is that we always compare upwards. Right. Mm -hmm. So if you're very fit, you compare to someone who is more fit and then you feel, ah, you know, what am I doing with my life? But comparing down, comparing to the times where things go wrong or someone who lost what you have or whatever, that's when you start to appreciate gratitude truly solidifies the happiness equation. So the happiness equation says events minus expectations. When you have gratitude, when you compare to people who are less fortunate, it triggers gratitude that reminds you that events are not only meeting expectations, they're beating expectations widely, okay? It's just that you were setting your expectations wrong. You were setting your expectation that every appendix operation ends in success. In reality, I don't know if people know this, the, I think the second biggest uh, reason for uh, death in the United States is medical malpractice. 
right? Really? Yeah, I mean, in, in, in many, many, many ways, this is not normal at all. And I don't mean to scare people, right? But I mean to say, uh, when, you're ha- when you're healthy, that's in itself not to be taken for granted at all, right? So, so, th- so this is one thing. Talk, talk about the eraser test. The eraser test is basically to try and again solidify what life really is about, because we forget that. You know, most of us in, in, in game theory in mathematics, uh, we think of life, basically if you, if you, there are two types of games, okay? There are games like uh, swimming, when you were a swimmer, mm-hmm. uh, Lucy. So swimming is a finite game. You get into a race and you can either win or not win. If you win, the others lose. If you lose, the others win. Yeah. Right? Uh, those finite games, the strategy around those games are all centered around the result. Right? Then, uh, then there, are, there is what you're doing now. You know, you're now all about, I want my, uh, as you told me on the podcast, health, performance, and aesthetics to always, to continue to evolve as a healthy combination. Mm-hmm. Right? Now, that's an infinite game. You don't achieve that and stop. If you achieve that and stop, it's over, right? So you have to keep playing the game over and over and over and over. Now, in life, most of us solve life as if it was an, a finite game, okay? That we set specific targets and we say those targets are what we're trying to achieve. And, you know, interestingly, when you achieve them, if you don't achieve them, you're frustrated and unhappy until you do, okay? And when you achieve them, interestingly, what ends up happening is... You, you're happy for 16 seconds and then you set another target, right? And that's quite interesting because um, you, you look back at those times when you wanted 100 pounds a week to, to live happily and go to the pub and suddenly they became 200, then they became 1,000, then you had a mortgage and so on and so forth, right? And, and now, now, when you start to see life that way, you start to realize that life is not about winning or losing, Okay? Life will come with a cycle very similar to a video game that is a few very joyful moments and a few difficult and harsh moments, a few very joyful moments and a few very difficult and harsh moments. And, and interestingly, what makes you the person that you are is not the joyful ones. What makes you the person that you are are the tough ones. You know, it, it, it is, you know, it's struggling with uh, an eating disorder. It is, uh, you know, dealing with a bully at, at school. It is losing your job. It is having to make difficult um, relationship decisions. It's a breakup. All of those things, when they happen, they feel horrible at the moment. But you look back at them a year later, two years later, five years later, and you go like, Wow. You know, it's good that I broke up with that asshole, right? You know, or basically it taught me what my my worth is and allowed me to find a better person, right? And 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 that learning is quite interesting. Does that apply to losing a child? And that was your difficult question. Well, I'll have to tell you openly. I I so I was uh, speaking. It was two thousand nineteen before. COVID, uh, literally December 2019, I was in a conference and, uh, you know, I was on the panel, uh, on a panel, basically uh, the host was interviewing me, 2,000 people in the audience and I was there all day before the panel, hugged and loved and people shaking my hands and asking me to sign the book for them and 
And then uh, Martin, the, 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 the host, asks me at the end of the interview and he says, um, would you erase losing Ali? Okay? And I find, I find myself weeping on stage. Because I, I'll tell you what, what I lost most was not Ali's wisdom. Okay? Wisdom is everywhere. He was just making it easy for me to find it. What I lost most was Ali's love. Not his love for me, my love for him. My ability to actually have an object of love hmm, that I can, you know, pour so much love on and feel loved back by. And, and I can tell you openly, there is not a single human, I mean, I love my daughter to death, but there is no, not a single human other than Ali and Aya that can on their own replace that love. There is something very unusual about that love. But I looked at the audience and there were 2,000 people looking at me, loving me. And you start to ask yourself, is 2,000 equal to Ali? Maybe not, but it's so generous from life to pour love on you that way. Because you're sort of working with life, you know, I'm, I'm trying to help life a little bit, trying to make things a little easier for others. And life is pouring back love and kindness and generosity on me. And I found myself asking myself that question on stage. I found myself saying, would Ali have erased it? And I, and I basically, I think it's recorded somewhere online. And I basically asked myself, if I had gone to Ali right before he went into the operating room and said, Ali, if you live, I'll hug you for the next 10, 15, 20 years. If you leave, more than tens of millions of people will find happiness as a result. And if you know my son, he would have said immediately, kill me right now. Right? It would have been his wish to actually, I mean, I know that Ali would have said, yeah, it's better to have millions of people happy than for me to live another 10 years. Because there is, there is an interesting side. You said you don't believe in religion, and it's not about religion. There is an interesting side to understanding what death actually is. And I don't know if you've reached that part in the book, but chapter 13 is the most um, eye-opening scientific view of death, if you ask me. Because science doesn't tell you the whole truth, sadly. Science tells you only a part of the truth that is related to the physical world. And anything that you cannot measure by science, the scientific method will say doesn't exist. So they can't measure death because it's, it's beyond our physical world. So to them, death is nothing, doesn't exist. But the truth is, and I don't want to be over complex here, the truth is if you have a basic understanding of the basic principles of physics, entropy, uh, the, the Big Bang, um, a bit of quantum physics, and a bit of the theory of relativity, you realize that uh, death is not the opposite of life. Death is the opposite of birth. Okay, We come to this life through a portal called birth, and we leave this life through a portal called death. Okay, but life exists during, before, and after. There is, there is no, there is no during, before, and after. There is no time. This, this is what most people don't understand: that your consciousness, your actual essence of who you are, uh, is not subject to time. 
This is why religions advocate eternity of heaven or hell or whatever that is, or an eternity of reincarnation. There is an interesting element of truth to that because time does not exist. Most people will find that very difficult unless they really understand the mathematics of theory of relativity. But time doesn't exist. Ali was not born before me as a being, as an essence. Ali's body was born after me, and Ali's body decayed after my body. Okay? But Ali's essence, call that consciousness, call it spirit, call it whatever, existed during, before, and after. Right? Once, once you get that, and once you realize that I'm in my 50s now, right, and it, it passed by like this. Hmm? So it's actually quite likely that by the time I'm on my deathbed, it will pass by like this. That the only certainty I have in my life is that sooner or later, I'll be at the end of this book, okay? Sooner or later, I'll be where Ali is, okay? And when you start to realize that, it doesn't matter anymore that Ali left a little earlier. What matters is what am I going to do with the remaining three chapters? Hmm? And I think that's true, by the way, whether you have three chapters or 13 chapters or 200 chapters. The only asset we are ever given, ever, the only thing you will ever have is time. People forget that. The only thing, even though your spirit is not affected by time, your physical form is just constantly decaying, running out of time. Now, what do you do with that time? What do I do hmm, when my son leaves and leaves me a mission? Hmm? What do I do with the, with the remaining heartbeats that I have? One way to use them is to close my door and cry. Nobody would have blamed me if you had hugged him once, I promise you. You would not blame me if I cried for the rest of my life, right? But is this the best use of time? Is this the best use of, of, of what he taught me? Is this the best use of the fact that somehow through this game strategy, he decided to take his avatar out of the game first? And we did that so often when we played together. It was so clear to me when he left. Because often we would be playing a mission and the only way to, to finish the mission to a satisfactory result would be for one of us to jump in, kill as many enemies as possible, and fall, right? And then the second player would go and finish the game, right? And it's a very well-known strategy for gamers and it felt clearly that this is what Ali did. There was some kind of a of a contract between our, not our avatars, but our essences, sitting on a sofa somewhere, whatever that is. And I'm not talking about this from a religious point of view. I'm talking about this from a, an absolute scientific point of view. The, the, the thing holding the controller of this physical form as an avatar is not in space-time. It cannot exist in space-time. It seems to me somehow that Ali and I, sitting on that sofa, Ali said, Papa, this mission is worth it. Okay, I'm going to jump in, I'm going to finish a few things, and then I'm going to die. And, you know, you take what I did, and you, you finish this mission, right? And interestingly, every time we did that in the game, he was still next to me on the sofa. Basically, he was saying, I'll, I'm waiting for you on the next level. Hmm? And, and I think if you really start to think about life that way, that infinite game suddenly becomes... Hmm, I have a reason to do something today and again tomorrow and again tomorrow and again tomorrow until the end of the level. 
right? And, and that reason, hmm, would I ever erase? No. My, my son and I will be hugging, not in this physical form, but in our essences, in our conscious form, hmm, in some time, call it five years or 10 years or 20 years, it will pass like that, I promise you. Hmm? It will pass like that, and I'll be hugging him again. Hmm? But between now and, and, and then, can I make a billion people happy? Can I make a hundred people happy? Isn't that a life worth living? The way you talk about it is so refreshing, because I've never heard of someone talk about a death in that way before, and grief in that way, because Ali has given you this purpose and I think a lot of people who will be listening will re-listen to that and re-listen to it over and over again to let those words sink in. Like I was just sat here then listening to everything you were currently saying because I'm currently going through grief for my uncle. So I'm sat there and I'm just like, I'll, I'll re-listen to our own podcast. I'm sorry. No, that's absolutely okay. And the way you describe it is truly, truly wonderful. Really it's, wonderful. Have you ever been in a movie theater where you sit in the theater and, you know, did, did you notice the red th- um, um, curtain and the carpets are not clean and the place, yeah. like, right? Yeah. And then the movie begins and we get absorbed in it and we think that we are next to the two lovers kissing on the screen. We just completely lose touch with reality, mm-hmm. right? I promise you that illusion is what this life is. And I don't know if we have the time, but there are, there are tons of scientific evidence that will tell you that this life hmm, is, is, an, is, a, is a, it's not an illusion, it's, a, it's not a movie, it's a video game, okay? Because you have controls to control the avatar, but we're sucked into it, thinking that all that we are is that physical form, right? We're not at all. We never really die. We never die. And I say that openly, and, and I don't say, I know some people will go like, he's, ne- he's nuts. Come and talk to me about the science of it. I promise you, this avatar is the illusion, okay? Life never ends in a different form, hmm? but life exists outside space-time. Those laws of physics that, that tell me that I have a 70 year of life, or that's a blip in, in, in the eternity of being outside space-time. Your uncle's physical form left. Your uncle's um, essence is sitting next to Ali laughing. <laughs> yeah. That's so w- nice. When you, when you talk about some of these situations, especially the brain, you almost talk about it like it, it's, it's not you and it's a, it's a different <laughs> the brain person. It's not you, yes. We were discussing this on the way down, weren't we? Because you, you'd kind of touched on something similar this week. Yeah, where... You've said the voice in your head is not you. Mm -hmm. And it was so weird. I read that part of your book and the next day I had therapy and she said the exact same thing. But I still can't really wrap my head around it because if it's... I struggle with that quite a lot because I think the voice in your head, whatever it is, is very, very powerful but can you touch on that? If, if Let's start with the fact. If it was you talking to you, mm. why would it need to talk? Mm. Do you understand? Mm-hmm. A, a, the, the conversation in its nature is a third party 
property. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's talking because it's not you. So that's the only way you can understand what it wants to tell you. Now, when you when you when you look at uh, at the um, uh, MIT in 2007 did uh, a, a study. They put people in MRI machines and they uh, asked them to solve word puzzles. So there are certain parts of the brain that would fire up the problem-solving parts mm -hmm. of the brain. And then they observed, which was the original purpose of the experiment, is to see which parts will fire up. They observed that after the problem-solving parts fired for, for a while, depending on the complexity of the problem, the brain would completely stop solving the problem, and then the verbal association parts of the brain back here would start to fire up for up to eight seconds, and then the participant would know the answer. Quite interesting. So the brain solves the problem first, right? And then it talks. It talks like I'm talking out loud. It talks to you for eight, up to eight seconds, and then you know the answer, mm -hmm. right? The, your brain is literally talking to you. And, and, and the, the, the confusion comes from a very simple thing. It is a biological organ. I mean, if, if you hold, again, look at the work of Jill Balty Taylor, you know, her TED talk, her first TED talk is so beautiful, where she's actually holding a brain on stage right wow. to show you the two hemispheres and uh, it's beautiful she she was um anyway so so basically it's it is a lump of meat it's a three pound lump of meat it's a biological organ right just similar to your kidneys similar to your heart now your heart pumps blood around your body mm -hmm. nobody wakes up in the morning and says i am the blood being pumped about around my body right your kidneys with all due respect take the poisons out of your body in the form of urine nobody wakes up proudly and says i am urine right but everyone wakes up and says i think therefore i am i am the thoughts inside my head mm -hmm. okay thoughts inside your head are a biological product of an organ okay that has a, a more refined product okay the product is thoughts and reason and logic and words basically and uh, uh, um, what was his name? Uh, Vygotsky, uh, Liv Vygotsky was a Nobel Prize winner, a Russian Nobel Prize winner in the 1920s that did research that basically said we internalize our outer speech into inner speech. So when you're a child, you learn language. Okay, and so you practice. You you see your mom and you say, "Hey, mommy, this is an airplane. This is milk. This is right." And, and then it becomes awkward after a while, like everyone, if you feel that everyone's annoyed with you talking all the time, so you internalize it. So you start to tell yourself aeroplane, milk, book, mm. right? And it becomes the only building block of knowledge you can ever rely on. It's interesting, you know, do it. Close your eyes, cleanse your awareness for a second, and then open your eyes, and you will, the first thing I will see is Ben. Right. So in my brain, I'll say, oh, Ben. Right. My brain is constantly defining things. Now, as it uses language to explain things to us, we think of it as me telling me what to do. Right. It's not. It's not my brain. It's not I, I, I think, therefore I am. It's I am, therefore I think. OK. I am actually, therefore my brain thinks. Right? My brain has that function of being that survival machine. It's constantly analyzing the world around me and turning it into words so that I can choose, make decisions based on it. And that's the key word. 
The key word is if, if it's my brain presenting things to me, I don't need to obey. I don't need to associate. If my brain says, get up and hit Ben, right? He's so fit, I hate him. Right? <laughs> if, if my brain tells me that, doesn't, that doesn't mean I'm a bad person. Yeah. That, that basically means my brain thought that's a good idea. Right? I would be a bad person if I got up and hit him. But if I said, are you stupid? He's so wonderful. Right? When, when, my bra- when I do that, I'm literally telling my brain, horrible idea brain, go find me another one. And so my actual technique, and I know may, some people may have heard that before, is I call my name, my brain Becky. Mine's really? called Sarah. You've, you've named it? Yeah, it's a third party. I'm not a, a guru or a, you know, everyone's, uh, um, you know, ha- has that uh, idea of thoughts happening in your head all the time. The only thing is, because Becky is a third party, I can tell her and say, what did you just say? What, what, what proof do you have for that? Can you give me evidence for what you just told me? Can you give me other ideas? So I have a technique, for example, with Becky, which actually is is so effective, and I grew into it over time. If you look at the world around you, it's fair to assume that 99% of life is good. 99% of life is okay. I mean, the reason why we panicked so much about COVID, for example, it's because it's the first pandemic of your lifetime, mm-hmm. right? You, you know, most of us have never experienced an earthquake. We see them on TV, but, you know, more, mostly on solid ground. Most of us are, are, are healthy most of the year until we catch the flu. The flu is the anomaly, yeah. right? But your brain, believe it or not, 60 to 70% of the thoughts in an adult brain are negative. Six to seven out of every 10 thoughts that your brain will tell you, your Becky will tell you, are something is wrong. Is that even conceivable? Like if 60 to 70% of the events of my life are wrong, I wouldn't be alive. Yeah. Right? So I trained Becky for, at the beginning, I said, Becky, look, what you're saying doesn't make sense. It can't be, it can't be this bad. Right? So of every time you're going to tell me that something is wrong, I'm going to ask you to give me something that's right. One to one. Okay. Now it's one to nine. So I basically, every time my brain will tell me, oh, by the way, uh, you know, the recording is not, is, uh, is not going to sound right. Okay. I force my head. I say, okay, maybe that's what you think. Tell me 10 things that will be right. or Nine things that will be right. Okay. Tell me, tell me how many times before it was right. Tell me, uh, you know, I, I, I constantly get my brain out of its comfort zone to get into the positive. Now, your, your question was, can I change that? Mm. Once again, it's neuroplasticity. Okay? Incessant thought mm, is an ADHD. Uh, I, I, in my third book, I call it deliberate, lack of deliberate attention. Okay? Deliberate attention is a skill mm, like being able to push the extra 10 pounds. Okay, it's a skill that you deliver that, that you develop over time, and there are ancient methods to teach you that skill, like meditation. So I hosted on on slow mo. I hosted Matthew Ricard. Matthew Ricard is known to be the world happiest man, at least in the news headlines, because he meditated for sixty thousand lifetime hours, sixty time sixty thousand hours of meditation, right? Uh, and Matthew, when they put him in an MRI machine had a, a totally different configuration of a brain. So his prefrontal cortex was bigger, his insula was bigger. The parts that are exerting deliberate attention became bigger because he uses them all the time. Okay? And, and, and so accordingly, 
if you allow yourself the time to meditate, hmm, 10 minutes a day, five minutes a day, if you allow yourself to not use your phone on your commute, if you allow yourself to deliberately look somebody, somebody in the eye when they're looking at you and talking to you and listen to them, mm. okay? If you start to include those activities of attention in your mind, by definition, when you're doing those activities, you're not mind wandering, okay? And the part of your brain that is focused on deliberate attention becomes stronger. The part of your brain that is focused on mind wandering, the good news is what you don't use shrinks. So if you're not mind wandering all the time, what you use shrinks. So this is one thing. To, to avoid that incessant white noise in the background, focus on deliberate thoughts. That's number one. Number two, and I say that openly, and a lot of people who focus on meditation as a teaching will, will you know, criticize me a little bit. There is nothing wrong with thought. Absolutely nothing wrong with thinking. I, I uh, you know, I, I hosted Galing, Galing Tupton, who is actually the, 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 you know, sort of the most prominent monk in the UK. And he spoke about meditation and said, it's not about silencing your mind. It's exactly like that last push, that last rep that allows you to actually grow your muscles. Meditation is about the activity of pulling yourself back to silence. You're supposed to mind wander and then bring yourself back to silence and then mind wander and then bring yourself back to silence, right? And, and the idea is that it is, you know, it, 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 it's okay to mind wander. As a matter of fact, advanced monks will start to meditate on a topic like loving kindness, for example, okay? So you're supposed to actually use meditation to regulate your ability for deliberate attention and then direct that ability to positive thoughts. So if you manage to get your brain to think positively, think away. Think at 400 miles an hour. I'm really thankful you said that about the meditation because I tried it a year ago to help with just my general anxiety and I thought I was doing it wrong because I physically mentally could not silence so my said, brain of but I thought I was doing meditation wrong so I gave up on it that's the opposite because I you had, were doing it right I had thoughts constantly and I would bring myself back to my breathing that's it I'm gonna start doing it again then oh my god because I thought <laughs> but I really thought I thought I was doing something wrong because I've got a busy mind. I'm a busy... I couldn't we all, we relax all it. Do. We all do. Mm. You're, so, so a fact about the mind is it will never be silent. Mm. Remember when they tell you to meditate, they tell you to focus on your breathing. Okay. In my work, I call that experiential thinking. It is a kind of thought to focus on your breathing. Your brain ticks at 60,000 cycles a day. Right? With every tick, like a computer processor, it will produce a, poof, a firing of neurons. It will think with every one of them. The question is what you would tell it to think about. Okay? Remember on my podcast when you said when you smile, hmm, you, you feel happier. Right? Rem make that your thought. Make that your meditation. M make your meditation, I'm going to smile for the next five minutes. And every time my smile fades, I will bring back my smile. Okay? That thought is experiential thinking. It's like focusing on your breathing. One of my very, very, very uh, annoying, but I love it, uh, meditation techniques is I wet my finger before I meditate and I put a drop of water on the tip of my nose. 
okay? And my meditation is about I'm not touching my nose. I promise you, not a single thought in my brain other than, oh my God, this is itchy. <laughs> oh my, like, I really want to touch focus. it. Absolutely. The whole idea is deliberate attention. Now, remember, deliberate attention is not the objective. It's basically when you ran 100K, you were practicing fitness for the purpose of running the 100K. Right? You were becoming fitter so that you run the 100K. Yeah. Right? Meditation is not the objective in itself. The ability to regulate and calm your brain is not the objective itself. It's the fitness you need so that when uh, Lucy says something that you know, stirs your emotions, you can tell your brain, hold on, calm down. Let's focus on something and then analyze this properly. Okay, let's not react without a, a conscious mind. Let's actually use the training that we have, the fitness, the mental fitness to bring ourselves back to deliberate attention so that we can go from deliberate attention to thoughts, right? To positive thoughts. One of the exercises that works really well for me uh, is, so, so you can consider it a type of meditation. It's a very advanced tantric meditation if you really take the, 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 the core of it, but I don't do it that way. And I call it meet Becky. So three times a week in the morning, I set my timer to 25 minutes. And instead of trying to calm Becky down and tell her to shut up, I let her go mad. Okay? I simply sit there and I, I, I tell my brain, think about anything you want to think about. Right? And there are two rules. Rule number one is every thought that my brain will bring will be fully acknowledged. Sometimes I take notes of it. Okay? And, and then I ask my brain what else. So I acknowledge it and let it go. My brain says, hey, remember to call your daughter? Oh, very interesting. Yes, call Aya. Okay? What else? My brain would then come up with another idea. You're fat. Oh, thank you, brain. That wasn't really nice. You think I'm fat? Good. What else? Right? right, and then and 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 this is rule number one. Rule number two is no thought can be repeated. Okay, so eventually, after a while, you'll notice it's amazing. Normally, three minutes into the exercise for me, my brain goes like, "Shit, he's listening." I might as well come up with something smart. So my, your brain will visibly, vividly slow down because it's actually now considering what it's telling you. It's no longer incessant. Okay becomes a trickle almost. You, you feel that the thoughts are coming in crisp and clear, almost well thought through. For me, around 11 minutes into the practice, okay, I ask my brain and I say, what else? And my brain will say, you're fat. And I'm like, but you said that before. We can't repeat thoughts. What else? Okay. And I promise you, it goes like, that's it. I have nothing else to say. I imagine that helps with creativity. It's incredible. If you hit a mental block, it's, a plateau. It is incredible. So, so two things happen at minute 11, okay? One is, I promise you, it is a joy like no joy you've ever felt. Because you're not struggling with Becky anymore to silence Becky. Becky has nothing to say, okay? I believe that this is one of the definitions of what heaven could be. No brain chatter. Be Becky's like, nothing to say thanks for listening right number one number two is then every now and then becky would come up with some piece of gold like a gold nugget okay because now it has the space to actually consider what matters 
right? So I, I'd find myself, and I, I, I do that a lot with my writing, so I don't know if people know that. So I, I write many, many books at the same time, but I write very structured, like a, like a software engineer, really. And I would take a topic, hmm, and I would tell myself, okay, we're going to write this chapter today. And believe it or not, the way I write is I don't touch a keyboard. I say, we're going to write this chapter today, and then I wait for two hours doing absolutely nothing. Music in the background, my iPad in my hand, and I take notes, right? And do absolutely nothing. I make, make, go make a coffee, but I don't force myself to do anything, right? I promise you, an hour or two later, suddenly I get a download with the entire chapter completely formed completely formed. We're going to talk about this, then we're going to talk. You know the, the bold bits that you talk about? Yeah. I find myself writing all of the bold bits, right? And then I hold my phone and dictate the book to author.ai. Like literally, I dictate my chapter to an... Uh, to a, 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 That's amazing. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's amazing. And Incredible. And, and I, will, I promise you, by the end of four hours, I have 18 pages written, okay? Not because I was typing for four hours, but because, of course, I have to edit it the next day and so on, and it improves. But because I allowed my brain the space, allow your brain the space to consider your relationships around you. Allow yourself, your brain the space to consider your commute, to consider your emotions, to consider your traumas, to consider your, your, your uh, ambitions in life. Okay? Listen to Becky. And when you allow Becky a space, it doesn't complain anymore. You know, one of the reasons why incessant th thinking happens is because I, I don't know if you have one of those friends, you know, where they wake up at 4 a.m. in the morning inspired by something. And so they text you, hey, I, there's something I need to tell you. Right. And of course, you're sleeping. So you, you don't know. Right. And then you wake up at seven and there are like 14,000 texts. Hey, are you awake? Are you awake? Are you awake? Right. And, and uh, you know, I want to sleep another hour. So I ignore them. Right? By eight now, they're really angry. Like, hey, why are you not answering back? And I then text and say, hey, I just woke up and I text <laughs> you at nine. Okay? They go like, yeah, sure, no problem. Nine is good. Mm -hmm. Right? They're, they're constantly annoying you with those incessant texts because they haven't gotten a confirmation that you heard them. That's what your brain is doing. If you tell your brain, I had a friend of mine... <coughs> Uh, if you tell your brain, I had a friend of mine that basically um, uh, takes appointments with her brain. So her brain would go like something is very wrong and, and she would say, okay, we're going to talk about this at six. And believe it or not, your brain completely stops, goes like, six is good. We're going to be fine at six. And then at six, you sit and have a deliberate conversation. It's not incessant. It's not crazy. It's not all over the place. Mm. It's, it's a deliberate conversation. What's upsetting your brain? You know, Ben, Ben's mustache. Like, we need to talk to Ben about... I'm, we I'm, need to talk about... Do we? I think Ben is very handsome, right? <laughs> he uh, but but, but you. simply, huh? your brain goes like, okay, we need to talk about this. And then now at six o'clock, you sit down and say, by the way, the world didn't end until six and I can do something deliberate about it. I've, I've never heard it spoken about in that way before uh, or, or, or almost put planned timing because... Like we often do, we put time to exercise our, our physical muscles. We don't put time aside to then think, I need to exercise my brain. My brain. I, I think that's something that I'll really take away from this 
conversation. I which promise is, you, it was the best thing I've ever done in my life. So, so I was very athletic. I know I don't look like it now, but when I was not your age, I got injured when I was your age. But in my early twenties, I was seriously athletic. National team uh, quality marathons and the crazy stuff that you guys do. And and I. Um, uh, um, you know, I graduated university. I, I used to, like you, I was in the national team, so I worked, I exercised four to six times a week, even in winter, you know, other than the physical exercises, just, you know, practice mm -hmm. and so on. And, uh, and when I graduated, I, it hit me so strongly that I will no longer be forced to learn, that no one will ever force me to learn anything anymore, that it would be my choice. And so I made a very simple rule. I said to myself, I will invest an hour a day in my mind like I invest an hour a day in my, in my physical body, okay? At the beginning, of course, at the time, what was available was books and maybe some documentaries or whatever. But then, of course, with YouTube and with, you know, audiobooks and podcasts and so on, I have not missed a day. I spend an hour every day. Now, at my age now, you're talking 14, 15,000 hours. Now, the difference between, uh, I mean, I don't, I didn't do an hour often, you know, mm -hmm. when you read a book, you do two, three hours a day. And basically the, the calculation, remember Malcolm Gladwell said for 10,000 hours, 10,000 yeah. hours, yeah. hours is I think four hours for seven years, mm -hmm. right? I've been doing this for 30 years now, right? And when you really, really add those numbers, suddenly the difference between you and the next guy or the next girl is enormous. Right? It's not, it's not that you're smarter. It's just that you're humbled with the amount of knowledge that is out there. It just allows you to understand that you really don't know much at all. Okay? And that a view of there is so much to know, and I know a bit of it, okay, gives you that habit of uh, next time you're uh, approached with something that is annoying you or that doesn't seem to be uh, matching your, uh, your, um, uh, you know, your expectations from life, you start to say, maybe I should investigate it a little more. Maybe I should learn about it a little more. Maybe I should understand it a little better. Uh, and, you know, and, and, and use that as a way to, uh, to, to approach life. Mm -hmm. And I think investing in your brain is something that most of us don't do. Well, one of the beautiful things that you said there and probably wrap us up quite nicely is how, how time has passed so quickly. And one of the things that we get to do in regards to knowledge is we are really humbled to be able to be the stupidest people in the room by speaking to people oh, like, like you. yourself and being able to read. It, it was the opposite with one of my <laughs> podcasts. Extract, so, extract yeah. these pieces of nuggets that I know we will definitely take away and our listeners will take away. Our listeners will. But I just really. wanted to finish with, with one question. And it's, um, there's been a lot of advice shared today that I think everyone will take away. What piece of advice would you leave with myself and Lucy that we can take away? For the two of you? Yes. Inspire. Truly inspire. I, 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 I told you on my podcast. Um, most people don't understand that uh, celebrities and influencers are human. Okay? And, you know, when I started to get to know about you and started to, to, uh, to research you, I stalked you for a while. You're so human. You're so beautifully human and, and you're so human with your flaws sometimes, with your traumas that you had to deal with. And I think that is the image that the world needs to see, that the, the reality of everyone, 
Everyone is going through the same struggles. Everyone is going through the same learnings. Everyone is going through the same uh, um, uh, journey in an interesting way. I, you'll be surprised if you look back at life from my perspective, how identical life is for all of us, just different colors, right? You know, the, 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 our, our aspirations and our achievements, and it's almost, almost always the same. We all we all love our families. We all want to be loved. We all you know it's it's so it's so interestingly boring when you really think about it. But what happened in our modern world is that the modern world sort of gave us screenshots and said this is life without the fillers in between. Okay, and I think it's the fillers in between that are the bits where we learn everything. Okay, it's not that picture of you now or you now with your beautiful fit body. It's all of the pain you've gone through to get there, mm -hmm. right? And, and I really, I beg you to continue to do this. I beg you to stand in front of people and say, I'm human. I'm human. I have a bad day today and, you know, and it's fine. It's absolutely okay. You know, I, 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 can, I can cry and say, hey, it hurts. It's fine. Don't think of me as the happiness guru. It's, you know, there is a pain and the pain is, need, needs to be handled, right? And I think those bits for everyone listening are what makes all of us human. Because in the world we're living in today, I think what we've miss, we're missing out most is that human connection, okay? Which, by the way, from research will tell you, uh, you know, it's the, high, the, 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 the top reason for happiness is to actually connect to others, is to actually find when you are with people that you feel safe around, it's basically what the equation is all about. Because other than seeking happiness, humanity in general is just seeking a sense of safety that I'm okay, I'm gonna be fine. And nothing gives you that sense of safety more than feeling that there are others around you that, you'll, that will support you just like you support them. Mm -hmm. And so being human is, is what we need most. And I think being human is what you guys bring so beautifully. Thank you very much. I really, really appreciate those words. And Amazing. I, I think um, I, we just feel so privileged to have had this conversation. I feel with, so with, privileged to have spent those hours with you. With you today. And I, I don't, not to blow smoke up your ass, I don't say this often, but this is probably the, the podcast I was most... Um, excited about that we've had and the conversation that we've had has been brilliant i think it's going to help so so many people out there from who who will listen to it and although i can't speak on behalf of uh, of obviously your son um but i think if you were my dad i'd be super proud of what you've done and the message that that you're spreading to the world now and the, the i'm sure the happiness that you're you're, you're bringing and you'll br continue to bring to other people's lives I, I hope he will be. I'll, I'll spank him when I meet him. Anyway. <laughs> Nonetheless, for leaving early, I should have been the one that left early. But uh, uh, you know, it's uh, it's uh, it's such a privilege. I you know, I, I I was telling you before we started recording on my podcast. I recorded maybe two hundred hundred ninety guests, and there is such a beautiful aura to the two of you. And I wish you constant love, deeper and deeper between the two of you. I think. I see it, I feel it. It's just so refreshing. And uh, yeah, it's such an honor. We really, really appreciate you. And I know everyone listening, watching whatever platform, follow Mo's journey, read his books and really take on board what we have spoken about today because I truly believe it will change your life. Where can people find more of you as well, Mo? 
So I'm 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 committing to answering every single message I get on Instagram. Crazy promise. Must be difficult, yeah. Crazy promise, but I answer in voice messages, so it doesn't take uh, as much time. And uh, so Mo underscore Gaudet on Instagram. Mm -hmm. I'm also active on LinkedIn. Mo um, Mo Gaudet uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not. I, I am present, but not active on the others. I'm not on TikTok. <laughs> don't even know yes. what that is. Uh, but I think the most interesting part to find me is my podcast. podcast really, yeah. 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 Slow, slow Mo S, S L O M O. Uh, without the W, because uh, because there I host some of the wisest human beings. Honestly, I stay, I sit humbled every time, like in our conversation, and I think it really spreads a lot of positivity to have one hour of slow time every every week to just reflect. Mm -hmm. So uh, maybe find me there and uh, spread the message. If I can ask people who are listening, if you learned something today that made you a tiny bit happier, please tell two people and ask them to tell two people. So we eventually get to a billion happy. Amazing. So for anyone who's taken anything from today's podcast, please share it with someone that you think it may help. Um, continue to tag myself, Lucy, and, and Mo in any of the snippets that you see online. Please continue to, to share, like, and subscribe to the podcast. And also, if you have any questions for either myself, Lucy, or Mo, please feel free to, to lead them on the, the YouTube channel because we will try and get back to them all as well. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mo. Thank you for having me. Thank it's been you. a pleasure.